You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello. Please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Martin Scorsese presents Gangs of Shutter Island. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas, and are you talking to me? Well, I am Thomas Mariani, and I am talking to you because I am a duly appointed federal marshal, and I want to know what happened to my partner. <laughs> what happened? So you sound like a... Uh... Joe Quimby. <laughs> Mayor, Mayor you better tell me what happened to him, Bo Quimby. Uh, well, um, as you could tell from our great uh, banter here at the beginning, uh, we have a new episode of Devil Edge, Devil Bill, where um, at the end of our previous episode, we picked a good and a bad feature related to a topic that we are uh, doing. Uh, usually it's related to something that's uh, current and in the in the realm of film, and obviously a big current thing. The day after, actually, we're releasing this particular episode, The Irishman, a Martin Scorsese movie is dropping on Netflix, which is weird to say, given how much that dude loves film in general, that he's willingly letting Netflix kind of dump his movie briefly into theaters and then out onto a streaming platform. The new Martin Scorsese movie, starring De Niro, Pacino, and Pesci, is going very, very limited release and then streaming. That is fucking insane. That entire sentence I just said sounds like a made-up alternate reality that's true because i think it's interesting since uh martin scorsese obviously uh one of the preliminary directors still around one of the few guys from like that new age of hollywood uh from like the 70s which if you don't know in the 70s after the studio systems kind of collapsed a bunch of directors came in and sort of evolved what the idea of modern hollywood cinema would be at that time people like francis ford coppola or later on Spielberg and George Lucas and Martin Scorsese just kind of came in and made these sort of more grounded examples of film that after the 60s had a deluge of like really bad big studio pictures that nobody cared about. People were more interested in this grime and realism, and obviously Scorsese was a big example of that. And I think he's one of the few people from that time that is still consistently making very good films, at the very least. Yeah, out of all those guys, he's, he's at least got the least amount of duds. I would say, in his filmography, uh, especially in his later years. Spielberg's sort of kind of like, meh, crapping shit out. And George Lucas, well, hell. He's not making movies anymore, honestly. <laughs> well, that's probably for the best. And Coppola occasionally makes movies, but they're just like random things that nobody sees. Yeah, which is completely odd to me that, much like the sentence I said earlier, that Francis Ford Coppola movies just completely fly under the radar. I mean, I get that now, because, like, despite how big he was in the 70s, like, after American Zoetrope kind of, like, fell under with um, the one from the heart, he was making a lot of movies that were either, like, surprising successes or completely fell under the radar and no one cared. <laughs> like, that's been consistent for him for a couple decades at this point. It's, that's just crazy, though. I mean, the guy created 
you know, masterpieces. Well, we should definitely uh, do a Francis Ford Coppola episode in the future, but that's not the discussion for now. We're well, what this. if I decided it is? What if I decide that that All right, is well, what, 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 what two films are we doing then for Francis Ford Coppola? Uh, we will do The Godfather. Okay, yeah, a pretty good one, yeah. And The Godfather 3. Oh, man, I feel like there's something missing in between. <laughs> well, but to get back to Scorsese again, uh, when was the first time you watched a Scorsese movie? Do you remember what Scorsese movie you watched first? And where was the first time you kind of became aware of him as a director? I believe the first Scorsese movie I saw was Goodfellas, just because my dad really, really loved that movie. And, you know, again, another movie that he let me watch way, way too young. But because my dad was such a huge fan of it and knew who Scorsese was and, like, really like Taxi Driver and Mean Street. So I was aware of Martin Scorsese as a director, basically right off the bat, from Goodfellas on Casino. I'd say it was probably when I really noticed his style. And things like that in relation to Goodfellas. Because uh, then it might have been pre-Casino, but definitely after Casino is when I first saw Main Streets. But I think Taxi Driver might have been in between the two. You know, yeah, like I said, ever since I first saw Goodfellas, like I just absolutely loved it. And I want to say Goodfellas might be the reason that I became such a big movie movie fan, as in how it shot and who directed it and everything like that. Before it was just mindless entertainment. I think Goodfellas is the first movie that really made me sort of appreciate the craft of movie making. Yeah, I would say the first one I saw was Goodfellas too, though that was much more intentional for my father, given, if you couldn't tell from my very Italian-sounding last name, um, he was a big Scorsese fan, and he introduced me to Scorsese as a person. I think especially because we had watched the Godfather movies, the first two, and uh, he never did tell me about Godfather 3. I found that about that on my own. That was something he just wanted to shield from me as a child. Oh, that's a good dad. That is a good dad. <laughs> I was just like, oh, I, I didn't know there's a third one. No, no son of mine will watch The Godfather 3. There's a third Godfather movie? <laughs> no! <laughs> it's like I imagine our generation treats the Star Wars prequels. Just in some way, they're just like, there were yeah, the other no. ones. Like, no. I, I could say absolutely no. <laughs> Not in my house. You get out of here if you watch Jajir <laughs> things. But yeah, for me, like Goodfellas was definitely the introduction. And then I remember distinctly where I first became aware of Scorsese specifically as a person was in high school. Uh, we would watch not the whole thing because it's, this is a very long sort of series of documentaries, but the a personal journey with Martin Scorsese through American movies that he made in like the mid nineties. Oh yeah, that was good. My TV production teacher would show me like several clips about just like him explaining like, oh, here's this one classic film you have you might not have heard of, or here's a classic film that like we're studying at that time and him talking about it a bit. Um, and that's where I first became aware of him as sort of the um, lovable impish uh, film persona that he is, and especially about how much he loves the idea of uh, film preservation, which I think he was the first guy to like really make me aware of the idea that film historians want to preserve these films, like the National Film Registry and stuff like that, which nothing else, like beyond his great film craft, I really appreciate his love for the idea of like preserving older cinema, keeping us aware of what it once was so that we can be you know, continue to have it in the future. Future filmmakers can see these movies to some point. Uh, I, I really respect that part of his uh, devotion to the medium as well. No, absolutely. And I think I'm right along there with you that that was the first time that I really became aware of any kind of movement like that to save, you know, old Sally Lloyd and things like that. And, you know, maybe get it, even get it in the Library of Congress or wherever they want to get it. I, yeah, I absolutely do think it was probably the same documentary series too and yeah i mean i he infinitely has my respect uh like you just said not only for being you know one of the greatest 
directors of, you know, my generations or since I've been alive or however you want to call it. Um, but for his love and respect of the medium as a whole, maybe not so much current trends. What are you talking about? He loves Captain America. He's he's a big fan of all these Disney Marvel movies. Yep, he's a love. big Disney Plus subscriber. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, his general love and uh, respect for the medium as a whole is also incredibly endearing. Just like his big old silly eyebrows. Them eyebrows, yeah. Yep. <laughs> and also that he has, has a love for like especially um, encouraging modern filmmakers today. Like he's also a big producer of a lot of like films that uh, come out from like smaller filmmakers, like the souvenir recently that came out uh, this year, which I believe stars uh, Tilda Swinton's daughter. Uh, oh yeah. And, uh, yeah. 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 And then he's a producer of uncut gems, the Safdie brothers movie and stuff like that. that's coming out this year too. So he also likes to like give a guiding hand to the, these young tykes that are coming in. So it's an infinite respect. Like he's a guy that not only loves making movies, but appreciates the craft in general. Well, I guess we should actually just get to the two movies we're supposed to be talking about here, Adam, because uh, we're interestingly talking about two much more recent Scorsese movies in the history of his career, given he started in like 67 was his first movie. So uh, we're, we're covering more of like the last 20 years in terms of his filmography with uh, our good film that you picked, which was Gangs of New York. And then uh, the bad film that I picked, which was Shutter Island. So 2002, 2010, fairly recent, part of the DiCaprio era. Yes. Uh, isn't Gangs the first one? Yeah, yes, it, it is the first DiCaprio uh, Scorsese joint, as we'll discuss uh, right now. Let's get into it. Gangs of New York. Americans are borning. I don't see no Americans. I see trespassers. A man who will fight for freedom. There's more of us coming off these ships every day. A man. Who will kill for power? Each of the five points is a finger. When I close my hand, it becomes a fist. Bricks, bats, axes, knives, pistols? No, pistols. Good boy. So, uh, Gangs of New York came out uh, December 20th, 2002. As directed by Martin Scorsese um, and was written by Jay Cox, Steve Zalian, and Kenneth Lonergan, based on The Gangs of New York by Herbert Ashbury, which was a very old book from like 1920. That's sort of about this specific era of New York that not a lot of people talk about. It's not depicted in a lot of films. About a hundred or so years after we obviously discovered America, but not too long into us having New York as a state and sort of the rivalry between Native Americans in the terms of like white people who came over with settlers that were native to New York versus like a lot of the Irish and other uh, immigrants that came in, especially black people. Of course, uh, this movie gets into that a lot um, with those groups. And Scorsese was trying to make this movie for several decades because uh, he read this book in like 1970 when he first started making movies and was like, oh, wow, we should totally make uh, a movie out of this because there's certain areas in New York where he grew up, obviously, where like it was still very similar to this. A lot of the structural stuff was still there. Um, and he really wanted to, like, depict sort of this particular era. But he didn't get to do it until 2002, once he got enough clout. And uh, because sort of that status of it being a big passion project, I think it kind of disappointed a lot of people at the time. And it was kind of dismissed as, like, um, one of the lesser Scorsese fairs. But, Adam, you picked it as a good pick, so I want to know, uh, why this one in particular? Well, for one, I absolutely love the setting. I love the costuming. I love everything. I love the look of the movie. The score, everything. I mean, I just think it's a really artistically almost perfectly executed film. Uh, but the main reason I picked this one is because it is one of the oft thought of uh, lesser Scorsese movies. 
Also, Daniel Day-Lewis, though. Jesus Christ. It's one of my favorite performances in a movie, period. Uh, so that was really one of my main reasons for picking it. I'll be, I'll be honest. It was a very uh, selfish reason. Yeah, I mean, I remember I watched this not too long after There Will Be Blood. Uh, because that was my first real exposure to Daniel Day-Lewis, and I was like, oh my god, this guy's amazing, I need to see more movies that he's in. And I thought, oh, he's in a Scorsese movie I've never seen before, and I really loved it around that time. Um, this is the first time I've seen it since, so it's probably been now about you know 10 or 12 years since um, I'd seen it originally, and um, yeah, uh, it's, it's very ambitious. I, I really appreciate a lot of elements of it. Um, I do agree that Daniel Day-Lewis is phenomenal. But the thing I kept thinking of, especially watching this, it reminded me of another Scorsese project, uh, Boardwalk Empire, in terms of sort of a lot of, like, the thematics and a lot of, like, the sort of juggling of characters. Uh, but also, um, it, I just kept thinking throughout watching it this time, this would work so much better as a TV show. I mean, you're probably right. Like I said, there's just something about this movie that I absolutely love, but maybe that's it. I mean, the, there's such a great look to it and core idea there. I can agree. It's a little sluggish for a three-hour sit. See, that, uh, it's it's actually quite the opposite reason why I'm saying this, because sluggish would imply that, like, none of this stuff is interesting to me, and it I feel the length all the time. It's not that, as opposed to, I feel like this should be longer, because it feels like we're really, like, either holding on too long for certain bits, or really rushing. Like, I think the last half of this movie is so uh, rushed about, like, oh, and by the way, we're having an election, and then also we're having these giant riots, and then there's all, all those other people that are, like, being... Uh, uh, it's it, it goes by, like, so quick in a way that I'm like, I can't, like, process all of this. This is so much you're throwing at me in, like, the last half of this movie. Um, I just, I, I kind of just kept feeling, like, I really want to stay more with, like, sort of these um, character relationships and kind of be more engaged with most of the people who aren't Daniel Day-Lewis, and it's not a slight against, like, most people who are all trying, but it is kind of a slight against sort of the casting, I think, particularly. A lot of people said this at the time, and I honestly think it's true. I think DiCaprio and particularly Cameron Diaz are very miscast in this movie. Oh, Cameron Diaz is uh, pretty terrible. <laughs> yeah. No, she's she is 100% miscast in this movie. I don't know that DiCaprio is... <sighs> That's a rough one because is he miscast? No, I don't think so. I think he brings, you know, he can bring a certain gravitas and intensity to almost anything he plays, and this role definitely call for that. But his fucking accent, oh, it's so hard on the ears. And especially because, like, he does all the narration, which apparently was like a big note where this had a lot of infighting between Scorsese and producer Harvey Weinstein. A lovely figure we all still love and have no well, kind of animosity toward whatsoever. Uh, um, but he was apparently a big proponent of, like, no, you gotta, like, cut this up a lot more, you gotta have the narration, which the narration was apparently not something Scorsese originally wanted. And that's where I really think it's like, okay, this being as, like, truncated as it is, they had to put in the narration to, like, really get you to, like, caught up to speed. And the added factor of, like, him having the best accent kind of just makes it all the more insufferable and it's a really fucking bad accent i mean it's really bad it reminds me of like when conan o'brien does his like fake break from ireland accident hoity toity face in yeah yeah to me it's it's really bad and hers is no better cameron diaz can't carry a movie you know you know what she reminds me of this she almost reminds me even like um heather graham and from hell you know from hell is not a good movie but, I mean, literally, to me, they're almost on the same level of performance. They com completely feel out of place. They both have terrible Irish accents. They both have, obviously, fake red hair. 
It's just, yeah, well, I, I don't care. I think the thing is with the both of them, I do agree. Like, say, like a DiCaprio adds a certain gravitas, but the problem is it's not a gravitas that fits this particular era. I don't think mm. because DiCaprio, I can believe from like around the era of like a Titanic forward, so like 1910s era. Like, I can believe him as, like, even in that particular period, even though he feels like a very modern actor. Um, but in the case of, like, this particular era, that they're like, every time I see Cameron Diaz and him alone, I keep waiting for them to say, did you fix the time machine? Can we, like, go back now? <laughs> it feels... So you're getting a Pacino Revolution vibe. <laughs> well, <laughs> they at least try. The problem is Pacino isn't yeah. trying. Yeah, Pacino definitely has an accent, though. <laughs> oh, good lord, he not... does. Yeah, yeah I, I, I can't disagree with you. They do definitely feel kind of out of out of place, out of time. I had read somewhere, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I, I think like you and McGregor was even in talks to be the DiCaprio part, and oh, I thought, good lord, that would be so much better. <laughs> way, way better, especially like at that era. The whole problem with the even the, the story mode, too, the story mode, Jesus Christ, like it's a video game. Well, the story mode. Uh, there are certain cutscenes I wanted to skip in this movie for sure. <laughs> it's kind of a cliche sort of motive, you know, want to seek revenge on the man who killed your father. And become like his protege and all his other stuff. Um, it, yeah. Like, yeah. I'm not against that in theory, but I just, I also feel like that relationship as a result of how big and expansive the story is feels very truncated. Like, I don't quite believe that Dandy Lewis at a certain point is just like, you're like a son to me. I really love you so much. He's like, do you? Yeah, <laughs> how, how long have you known this guy? It feels like he's only been here like a week. Brendan Gleeson, though. Oh, no. Like, that's the thing is, I think a lot of the supporting cast, like, really works for that period. Like, him, obviously, Day Lewis, who we'll talk about more, but even, like, John C. Riley, I think, really fits in that period. Neeson works. I will say, like, the opening bit, I think, is where the movie hits, like, a perfect zenith and almost it keeps trying to get back to that level and never quite does. <laughs> I think the opening of this movie is pretty perfect. Like, that whole flashback scene, seeing everybody kind of, like, walk up into, like, about to have that battle, and then him facing off against Day Lewis and the actual blood and carnage. Honestly, the only part I don't like about that opening bit is that weird Peter Gabriel song. What is the point of that? <laughs> I don't know, because, like, during the big carnage, it's, like, this weird guitar, and then when Liam Neeson dies, we get bagpipes, and then the Howard Shore score comes back in as he's dying. <laughs> and they do that weird choppy slow-mo, which I fucking hate. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially considering at the same time you could have been seeing Two Towers, uh, which had like one of the best battle sequences of all time that didn't do that choppy slow-mo shit that much. Exactly. But no, the opening scene is fucking badass. No, you know, the thing is, I do still really like this movie, but I could definitely see its flaws, and I definitely know why at the time it wasn't as well-received. Like, obviously, when you said this came out in 2002? Yes, December 20th, 2002. Well, so I was like 19 when this came out. I mean, it was right up my alley. It's bloody. It's, you know, violent, great acting, uh, you know, the Irish heritage, all that stuff. It's really there. So I've always had a soft spot for it. I watched it re- a couple years ago. I'm like, oh, I can kind of see the cracks in it. But man, the fucking Daniel Day-Lewis, though. And then watching it for this, I'm like, yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis. That's a pretty set. Uh, yeah. You might have like come to the dark side of that. Yeah. <laughs> I would say though, not just with Day Lewis, but also with just like the the clear ambition here makes me definitely still at least appreciate and respect this movie mm-hmm. a lot for the fact of like the whole five points like set that they built. That is an actual like almost like mile of set built in like Rome, Italy, in that studio, and it looks gorgeously filthy. Oh yeah, it's fantastic. That's a big thing I really appreciate about the movie is like it does not shy away from the filth and it does really like sort of revel in it. 
in that way um, where you see people just like going around covered in mud or just like dying horribly and like having their blood mixed with mud and shit like that. Apologies for my um, maybe inaccurate history. This is going on right around the same time as like the Old West is like not thriving, but kind of like almost on its way out, right? On the opposite yeah, coast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's pretty much this is like the Eastern equivalent of a Western at the time, which is like I really appreciate just that's such something we just don't get in terms of like historical depictions, especially. And it's so interesting to see it from this perspective and see this fully realized world all around these people. And even just like you get the sense of like, oh, here's John C. Riley coming in and he's showing a little, these people a tour. But it's it's a whole thing of like trying to show kind of a respect, even like with um, Daniel Day Lewis, how he has a sort of respect for Liam Neeson, even though he kills him at the same time. There, there's so many other people like we mentioned Boardwalk Empire, Stephen Graham, who would later play uh, Al Capone on that show popping up here as like a, a in a very similar sort of role for like that particular part. I I really just like love a, a lot of the, the set dressing and these other sort of supporting character actors that are really immersing you in that, which makes I think Cameron Diaz and uh DiCaprio stand out more. No, and you know honestly if he could have nailed the accent a little bit better, I think he would have been a little bit more tolerable. Because yeah. he is still DiCaprio. I mean he's still the fucking guy can really really act modern actor not it's just that fucking terrible accent that he still can't do accents you just spend too much of the three-hour runtime with the two of them so you're like okay it's it gets meandering at times right especially when they share so many scenes with day lewis i mean he's just fucking chewing every bit of scenery he's in even when he's not saying a word just by his posture and everything else. To the point where you, he's chewing so much scenery, you can see nibble marks on Diaz and DiCaprio. Yeah. Clearly between yeah, takes, mean, he was just getting nibbled. I'm an American born. <laughs> I'm sorry, I thought you was cardboard. Yeah. Whoopsie daisy. Whoopsie um, daisy. That's so great. Okay, we gotta talk about, all right, I, I want you to go ahead and just start talking about Dick Lewis. Just go off right. on like what you love so much about this performance, because it is admittedly phenomenal. Let's put it this way. I'm One of my favorite movies is Last of the Mohicans, which Daniel Day-Lewis in Last of the Mohicans is fucking phenomenal. He's gorgeous and long-haired and just can speak the language and steely-eyed, and he's, he's the hero, and you're like, oh, yeah, this guy looks like the fucking hero. Then you go to this movie, and he's hunched. He's got that horrible, matted-down, greasy hair, this giant fucking handlebar mustache, the eye with the the glass eye that's an American eagle, which is so cool, by the way. Uh, all the scars and his wardrobe with the fucking top hat and just the way he carries himself in the whole fucking thing where he's the most dangerous man there because he's a believer. He believes in this fucking idea of his that, you know, the Native Americans, which is so fucking just wild that he even calls it that because it's so far from the truth, but that they should run everything and that, you know, the blacks and the Irish and the Chinese and all that have no place in his America and his New York. And he'll violently and horribly defend that idea. And he's constant crave for power and the way he manipulates everyone Never once did I look at this performance and go, oh, that's the guy who played Hawkeye. Never. He completely disappears into this role, like he does most every role he's in. He's fucking terrifying, but he's so charming at the same time. I I can't, it's just, it's one of those that when I first saw it, I'm like, oh God, this is why he's fucking 
you know, when people talk about him, they're like, oh, yeah, but Daniel Day-Lewis, shit. Like people, actors, modern actors now, you know, even some of the greats will talk about Daniel Day-Lewis, who some of them are even older than him, with such great respect and admiration because he's that fucking good. And like I said, I, you know, watch My Left Foot, Last Mohicans, and Gangs of New York, and tell me that's the same guy. But no, I, I completely agree about um, him in particular. He's really the glue that keeps the movie together, which is kind of a problem when it's not, say, your main character in the movie necessarily, when it's a prominent supporting player. But I do agree that it's, it's he's worth watching the movie for, especially considering watching it this time, I noticed a lot more sort of, sort of like his Jangoism uh, was a lot more interesting considering like certain modern arguments uh, from quote-unquote natives of our country, and about immigrants especially, I, I found that a lot more interesting. It's just like, oh, this is kind of cycling from a lot of old past sins that we kind of breed to this day, and that's something, obviously, Scorsese's kind of going for. I do also love the irony of how much he hates Lincoln, given about ten years later he would play Lincoln. And also expertly play Lincoln. <laughs> oh, of course, yes, yes, but even the bit where, like, he throws the knife at the Lincoln poster. Oh, I know. <laughs> just like, yeah, that's pretty interesting. The terminology he would use, I mean, even that scene, y'all go ahead, go off to war, Die for your blackie brothers. And you're like, Jesus Christ, man, this fucking guy is walking up to anyone in this town, be it the mayor, the sheriff, whatever, does not give a fuck, dude. He owns the five points without question. And I do agree also that, like, especially the the accent, which apparently is like this sort of lost American accent that exists around this time. that only exists now in the way that like they were able to find any examples of through, like, political cartoons like parodying it and also just like sort of direct transcriptions from people who spoke this particular way i I just love also that that is like thriving in his voice it's this weird sort of like combination of a brooklyn accent and english accent kind of melding together in this weird way but but yeah you just like have so much tension for any time that he's around any of these other characters like especially the sort of the knife throwing scene with cameron diaz and the whoopsie daisy thing which is great where he's a fully realized sort of like almost cartoonish character like technically if you like drew him out he would look like a tim burton sketch of like a human with the giant top oh, yeah. Shit. yeah real lanky and yeah yeah you know, like, fucked up a high yeah, totally or even like a Leica movie oh, yeah. <laughs> like, the, yeah. like the box trolls or something <laughs> that's true like you stepped out of the box trolls yeah, yeah. To, to a certain extent yes uh but at the same time he just carries this menace that you wouldn't really quite expect from a guy of that particular stature like when he confronts brendan gleason who's just trying to be like oh we're gonna solve this the democratic way we're gonna speak eye to eye with each other and he just fucking hacks him with that goddamn meat cleaver um it, it, it really just like it shows that like you can't underestimate somebody who might look f- like lanky or frail or anything like that no like even when like when he gets shot just his the guttural like anger yell afterwards and, and what he does the guy who shot him i mean like i said he's skinny he's lanky he's older now he's gross looking like yeah he's just kind of looks feeble but there's no question he's the most dangerous man there and he's absolutely terrifying like i he's intimidating as fuck and yeah. i Thank God Bill the Butcher is not the lead character of the movie. Could you imagine how terrifying this movie would be? No, um, I, I, I do agree with that. But also at the same time, I would love if either DiCaprio was a stronger character or maybe, I don't know, you gave him more of a voice to some of these minorities who he's butchering <laughs> to yeah, a certain no, degree. I definitely agree. Yeah, because like, that's a, also a big thing watching this, which is like the, the only sort of prominent black character you have at all is Lewis Gilbert, who is very much like a, quite frankly, a token black person in this movie where like henry thomas and dicaprio just like yeah we're gonna really speak up for you black people right he's like yeah you are 
Yeah, no, he literally just stands in the background and goes, <laughs> like, yeah. several times. Which, like, is, which I get it's also an issue of, like, you have so many characters, but also that's another reason why I think this would work so well as a TV show, is that you could also have, that's a whole sort of subplot sect of this part that you don't get to in the movie that I'd love to see on, like, an expanded television show. It could almost be, like, the older equivalent of, like, Michael K. Williams' character on um, Boardwalk Empire, which is my favorite part of that show. He's so fucking great on that show. <laughs> I believe you. I've never seen an episode. <laughs> to be fair, that's one of the more underseen shows. Uh, you can also see a lot of the influence there, because he was, not only not only did he direct the pilot, but he was like a big producer on the show throughout, and you can see the influence there. Like, I would definitely recommend that show, if nothing else, for Bobby Cannavale, plays a very Bill the Butcher type character in season uh, three. Bobby Cannavale. Oh, he's so fucking good. <laughs> that was where I discovered how great an actor he was, was in that season three. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh my god, you're so amazing. I'll follow you to hell and back. And he's in uh, The Irishman now. He's one of like several Is different... It? People, yeah, like, I'm too fair. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, it, it's kind of like if you're Italian and or Italian-looking, so Italian-light, you're going to be in the new Scorsese movie, it seems. Like, everybody's in that fucking movie. <laughs> That's true, even like a Ray Romano. Yeah, it's Ray Romano. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, Martin, uh, don't go over there. Uh, oh. <laughs> Ray, you're not playing a woolly man this time. That's not what you're doing. <laughs> Is it lunchtime yet? Uh, uh, I got Metamucil. You know, I'm getting older. <laughs> That's the perfect Muppet impression of Ray Romano. Because <laughs> he is a fucking Muppet. I mean, basically. Uh, that's a basically. But it's just, this movie has so much, I guess that's the reason I like it so much. There's so much potential here. And the stuff that is done well is done expertly. Like you said, the fucking set design, the costuming, the supporting cast, pretty much all around, is fucking great. The opening is really awesome, other than Peter Gabriel song and choppy song. <laughs> yeah, and also I would say, in terms of Scorsese as our subject, uh, the the craft in certain shots, where especially whenever you go around the five points, like I, I always call the shots when um, early on you sort of get a feel for the geography of a place, even in non-Scorsese movies, I call that the Scorsese shot. Because he does such a great job of, like, really immersing you in, like, all right, here's the five points, here are some of these gangs, here's this particular area that's, like, the barber shop. here's this area um, that the mayor lives in, here's where Bill the Butcher's, like, main area is, and, and all his other places. Like, you get a real sense of the geography of the place, so that when shit ends up going down later, you get a sense of, like, that this location, to use a cliche, is a character in the movie. Oh, no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, that's a good way to put it, too. It is a Scorsese-style thing. He's, uh, I mean, he's known for his shots that he, some of the ones he can pull off, especially to open up sort of the, the world of the movie. You know, I mean, I've heard even him like putting cameras inside wheel wells on cars and stuff just to get a certain angle and things like that. I mean, the guy is just a master, master of finding the shot and finding the angle and making, uh, something which, you know, maybe other directors less, I don't want to say less skilled, but uh, maybe who don't have the same eye as him or however you want to put it, uh, taking a shot that they would just give you a crane shot or, you know, a quick dolly or whatever, taking something that in theory should be a simple, you know, get it done sort of shot uh, and making it breathtaking and really opening up the film. Or especially like what my favorite sort of sequence in this whole movie is the whole bit where they're doing the elections 
and they have everybody like going to vote and having them shave their mustaches and shit and go back and vote. And especially like we haven't talked about him, but fucking Broadbent, Jim Broadbent is so fun. It's like the crack man. He's so good in this. It's he's almost unrecognizable too. Yeah, um, he he really immerses himself in that accent as well. Um, and then especially his whole thing about like elections aren't made by the votes; they're made by the counters. Keep counting. <laughs> like I love that bit. Yeah, he's uh, well, he's Tammany, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like I said, he's almost unrecognizable with the beard and the darker hair and everything. But yeah, Jim Broadbent is so good in this. Unfortunately, Jim Broadbent for me now, which sucks, but he's always going to be. Nick Frost's dad in Hot Fuzz now for me. No, that's not unfortunate at all. That's a phenomenal performance, one of the best in cinematic history. It's so good. He had a great big bushy beard. Exactly. He would watch this movie and say, like, that guy's got a great big bushy beard. Yeah. Let's just say we won't be shy of Chunky Monkey for the next month. Um, <laughs> but, um, no, he's at, like, he, like you've said already, I mean, the supporting cast in this movie is phenomenal. Everyone's on their A game. And, I do believe that DiCaprio and Diaz are trying. I don't think she's at the skill level, and I don't think he's got the style. He's well, got this, the skill, but like you said, he's completely out of place. You got the heart and the soul, but you don't have the talent. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Two quotes, South Park. Um, but, you know, Adam, those sound like some final thoughts, so why don't you go ahead and spin off any last thoughts you have on Gangs New York? As far as everything we've talked about, all tie points are some of the you know, best examples of each thing. It's not the worst movie. It's not Scorsese's worst movie, I don't personally think. Um, But it is three hours long. It is narrated with a horrible, horrible Irish accent. And Cameron Diaz is in it. So if you can get past those things, I think there's a lot here that's uh, worth a watch, especially, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis, though, he's he's in my top five favorite villain performances of all time because of this movie. Um, so I think it's worth it for a lot. Or, or if you're not a Scorsese completionist, you don't really give a fuck about Day-Lewis, Daniel Day-Lewis. I mean, it's not gonna you're not gonna miss anything if you just skip it either. Um, as for me, I it's definitely gone down with this watch for me. I would say it is one of like the lower rung Scorsese movies. It's not the worst. I would actually say I watched actually earlier today as we're recording this, uh, his first film, uh, who's that knocking at my door? Um, which I would say is a curious experiment more than a movie. Um, so I would say that's maybe like his worst movie technically, but that's still worth watching even for it's covering some interesting sort of toxic masculinity aspects, even like 67 and it's the introduction of Harvey Keitel. And he's a little baby. Yeah, and it's Scorsese's first movie, so I mean... Yeah, and it's currently on Netflix as we're recording and putting this out here. Yes, it is on Netflix now, if you're curious to see it. But but I will say, with, with Gangs of New York, I, the, still the fact that this is a lower-tier Scorsese movie is saying a lot about Scorsese's career, that the guy always has been quite ambitious, even when he was younger. The fact that he wanted to make this at such a young age proves that he always had like a big, starry-eyed ambition. I think in this case, it might have been a bit more than he could chew to a certain extent, uh, but you can't deny Day-Lewis and the production design and the art design and all this other stuff. If nothing else, I think it's a real testament to, like, I would love to see somebody take this and turn it into a TV series, maybe the Peaky Blinders guys, I think, could do a really good job with it. So yeah, like, work. Right. Have Scorsese be involved as a producer, maybe have him direct the pilot, kind of like a, you know, a Boardwalk Empire. Just, I, I think you could do a lot with this 
premise. It's not a complete waste by any stretch. It's definitely got so much running through it that I would say, especially if you really like Scorsese, it's important to watch this, even if it is one of his lesser movies, just to show even that lower tier Scorsese, he is trying for so much and delivering, I'd say, the 60-40 rate with this. Yeah, I think that's fair. And uh, now before we get to our next movie, uh, let's go ahead and uh, spotlight an ESO show that you could listen to and queue up right after our podcast. We are the Cigar Nerds, bringing nerdy sophistication and geeky indulgence on all topics, including movies, video games, science, and pop culture news, all from the Nerd Cave Cigar Lounge. Find us on iTunes, Stitchers, Google Play, and wherever fine podcasts are found, including ESOnetwork.com and CigarNerdPodcast.com. So fire up a cigar. It's time to get nerdy. All right, and now uh, let's go ahead and get into our second feature, the one we advertise as our bad feature here. Um, it is Shutter Island. Give you a briefing about the institution. All I know is it's a mental hospital for the criminally insane. So this prisoner escapes in the last 24 hours. It's as if she evaporated straight through the walls. I've built something valuable here. I'm not going to give up without a fight. Let me see your face. Let me see your damn face now! So, uh, Shutter Island came out February 19th, 2010. Um, as directed by Scorsese. Uh, written by uh, Leda Kalagridis. Uh, based on the book Shutter Island by Dennis Lehane. And um, I remember distinctly uh, the reason why I picked this was because I saw this in the theater. At the time, it was the most profitable worldwide uh, Martin Scorsese movie that has been surpassed since. Do you know by which movie, Adam? Most profitable Scorsese movie since? Uh, well, it's, it's overall in his career, too. Oh, uh, well, hell. I don't know, man. Uh, the, the, the Stones one? Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, of course. Of course. That was a big fucking movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but this one is nothing to slay at with $295 million as it's uh, gross. And I remember seeing this in the theater because, um, as you guys will have heard by that trailer clip I put in here, um, this movie was advertised very much as a horror movie, which, of course, he hadn't done before, really. The closest you could probably say is like a Cape Fear, which kind of feels like um, a bit more horror-driven, but it's arguably a thriller at the same time. But he's always kind of dabbled in that to some extent in some of his other movies. Um, and so... I went into this with my father, and actually, we the whole family went <laughs> to see this, because we were like, oh, it's going to be a spooky movie in February when there's not a lot of those. And this movie is not quite a horror movie. Um, it definitely dabbles in a lot of like horror aesthetics. It's more of like a Val Luton-style horror movie, I would argue, in terms of what it's aiming for. Um, and I remember at the time being very disappointed in it, based on the trailers, but this was also a very important and uh, sort of my history of liking movies, because this was sort of the movie that I ruminated on where I'm like, well, there's a lot of stuff that I like, but is it the fault of the trailer, really? And I just sort of came to the realization that trailers do lie. And I've, that's an ethos I've kept ever since. But I hadn't rewatched this movie since I saw it in the theater, so I still had the somewhat negative perception of it. Um, then upon rewatching it for this, I still would say it's a lesser Scorsese, um, but I dig it a lot more this time, I would say. And we'll go into that a bit more, but uh, what are your thoughts on Shutter Island, Adam? I also remember the trailer, you know, Martin Scorsese makes a horror movie. I'm like, oh. It was well, that exact same voiceover. It sounded just like Yeah, exa it's exactly like that. <laughs> it's going to be crazy. It's, it's definitely not a horror movie, uh, but I do remember being kind of blown away by that idea, too. I'm like, 
oh, what the fuck, Scorsese's doing horror? Because I didn't even realize this was based on a book, I don't think. Because uh, I don't even remember if they, I don't think that was even in like the promotional material that much. They, you know, based on the novel, I think it was kind of just like Scorsese makes horror. But when I first saw it, I was actually really pleasantly sort of like surprised by it. I, I actually really dug it the first time I watched it. I love the way this movie looks. I mean, it, it's fucking just so, so fucking gritty. And again, the acting in this is pretty top-notch, too. But then after I saw it, and after I really liked it, I took some time to like think about it a little bit. And you know, I'm like, I don't know if it was that good. I think I'm just like sort of, I might be a Scorsese fangirl at this point, and I think he does. So maybe it's, was it that good? Maybe people are right. Maybe that's why it's not doing critically as well as everyone thought it would, and blah, blah, blah. Well, upon the second viewing, I decided that I was right the first time. I really, really dig this movie. I think it's a very, very well done movie. Is it in the weaker canon of Scorsese movies? Yeah, probably. I mean, I wouldn't say it's near the bottom. I'd say it's nice in the middle of the road. And I think a big thing was more so than like a Gangs of New York. I heard a lot of people criticizing this one because of DiCaprio, which is like, oh, he looks like he's wearing his father's clothes when he's being the deputy marshal. I think upon this watch, especially, I realized that like, I think Scorsese knows that. And I think that's sort of part of DiCaprio's performance as well. Absolutely. Yeah, because it feels definitely like he is this guy who, um, when we first see him, obviously, and we're not introduced to the twist that admittingly is pretty obvious to somebody who watches the first 30 minutes of this movie and has seen any other, like, twisty movie. <laughs> we're like, yeah. hmm, I wonder what's going to happen here. But at the same time, I think Scorsese's kind of just more leaning into this is in a similar vein of, like, a taxi driver or some of his other movies where we're following this main character who is capable of reprehensible, horrible things. But you get to know this character a bit more, not necessarily sympathize with him, but at least see how he operates. And I think that, especially with this movie, where it's a bit more sort of, like I mentioned, Val Lutiny has, has a lot more sort of visual language that feels like it's representing a lot of his issues, like the dream sequences. Like, usually I decry dream sequences on here, but the dream sequences here do such a phenomenal job of visually representing his own like issues with women and his own issues about violence and a lot of his anxiety from PTSD in the war and all this other stuff. I think it's a phenomenal performance from DiCaprio because despite putting on the ears of like, oh, I'm playing cops and robbers, I'm a duly appointed federal marshal, he really is childish and to a degree that's like unsettling. It's, it's less that uh-huh. he's necessarily maybe a child and more of like he's um, an animal with a gun to a certain extent. He's dangerous and unhinged in a way that he thinks he has it all together, but really he is um, tethering and breaking apart at any moment. Absolutely. And I think what with, with what the twist is, you know, things like his wardrobe and things like, obviously, the dream sequences and everything just make sense for the character. Like you said, like his wardrobe, that could be the fucking head prison guard's suit that they just let him wear. I mean, who knows? But there's a lot of pathos and a lot of layers to this performance. It's not such a cut-and-dry sort of thing. It's not, you know, this, if you don't see the twist coming, which, like you said, if you don't, then you've never seen a movie with a twist in it. But if you don't see the twist coming and you think he is this, you know, New England federal marshal and everything, then, yeah, he's going to come across like a prick. Or if you only think of the twist... But yeah, oh, he's just, he's a sociopath. But upon rewatch, you watch, and there's so many little things 
it's a really scary sort of performance by him. I really, really like it. Right, which is something you don't usually think of DiCaprio, especially around this no. time. Right? No, absolutely not. Because he's so much more sort of like a pretty boy. But in really watching this, you just get fully immersed in this. And even if, like, you give him the benefit of the doubt of, like, he's a duly appointed federal marshal at the very beginning of the movie, you do just see so many of these cracks, as you mentioned. Like, right at the beginning, he's, like, washing his face, and he's clearly, like, very troubled to some extent. So even right off the bat, you're kind of thrown off, like, hmm, I wonder where he's going here. But as you keep going along, you see certain, like, things and like some sort of methods for interviewing especially when he like interviews all the patients and, like the whole thing with the pencil that feels like something that you could only really get if you were around these people for as long as he probably right. was no absolutely 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 i think it's a very very like i said nuanced performance i i think it's one of dicaprio's best especially in his scorsese scorsese what the fuck <laughs> I think it's what it. <laughs> Scorsese is the sauce that my mama used to use. <laughs> oh, oh, me, I forget. Um, I think it's one of DiCaprio's best, especially when it comes to him and uh, Scorsese's collaborations. Um, if not his best, I, I think it's it's a really, really gripping uh, performance, which I think is perfectly anchored by a very understated uh, Mark Ruffalo. Yeah, which this was around the time that like he was starting to get a lot more clout. Like this is not too long before he got his nomination for the kids uh-huh. are all right and stuff like that. So this is around the time he was kind of rising up. He was right before he became Hulk and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, and he actually got. I love the fact that he got this role by writing a fan letter to Scorsese, <laughs> just saying like how much he loved fucking Martin Scorsese. He's just like, all right, kid, I'll cast you in my picture. Come on, let's go. And I, I think an understated Mark Ruffalo. Uh, is some of the best acting, uh, modern, well, not modern, but mainstream acting out there. Uh, like this, and especially Foxcatcher. Yes. Oh, God, he just breaks my heart in Foxcatcher. He's really, really fucking good. And it's also really, really nice to see a non-paycheck performance from Ben Kingsley as well. Yeah, rewatching it this time especially, I, I've got so much more about Ben Kingsley, because both of them are playing these parts where it's like they want to play into like the role-play thing, which admittedly, the mm-hmm. sweatiest part of this movie is the whole idea of, like, oh, we're playing this most elaborate role-play possible. <laughs> and how to try to break it... this guy's psychosis, yeah. Yeah, admittedly, like, some of the details of that are just like, so how did you get Mark Ruffalo to fall off? that fucking cliff and then come back and shit like that. That's, that's where it's a bit stretched. Like, eh, that's a bit much. Uh, but you, uh, the performances really work in terms of like, these guys are walking that tightrope between, Hey, we're trying to perform these roles, but also we're trying to examine this guy's psychosis and what he's doing. Um, and I really appreciate them from both sides. And especially even like a Ben Kingsley, where he almost comes off so, Matter of fact, you're just like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I guess, you know, it's really raining outside. I guess it's not going to come up. That's another thing, too. It's like you had to really work on the weather contingency as well to make sure yeah. you wouldn't get off the island. Right. No shit. Like you got whoever your meteorologist is. It's like the greatest meteorologist in the world that he was able to predict this would happen at this specific time. I just want to see, like, John Carroll Lynch outside with, like, a weather, like, machine. He's just, like, making it rain this much. He's got, like, five hoses up there just, like, making all this go. <laughs> Another great performance, though, too, from John Carroll Lynch mm-hmm. is the, the main oh, yeah. security. There's a lot of great character actor performances here, particularly someone who we've talked about before, Elias Coteus, basically doing a De Niro impression in the oh, best 100%. way. He's better looking De Niro Frankenstein. Yeah, that's pretty much I mean, it. <laughs> I mean, it really is. But he's fucking terrifying. 
Yes. He's so scary. And then Jackie Earl Haley riding that Rorschach voice, but still doing a really good job. Mm-hmm. Or Ted Levine, very creepy too, is the warden. Oh, God. I, well, Ted Levine is just, he's terrifying. Well, but it's interesting <laughs> too, because like, you know him as Buffalo Bill, but now he's playing like an authority figure and he's just as creepy. Yeah. Like that bit yeah. where he leans into him is just like, well, I know you're a violent person because I'm also a violent person. What's stopping me from chewing out your eyeball? <laughs> like, what the fuck? Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, fucking uh, Max von Sydow. Right, very much playing into sort of the stereotype of the Nazi doctor. I was going to say, 100%, he's, uh, you know, he's Laurence Olivier from... Um, Marathon What Man. is it? Yes, man, 100%. Yeah. He, he's just... There's no question... Well, obviously, he's not. But when if you don't telegraph the twist, like, this guy's fucking evil. Like, there's no question this guy is experimenting on these fucking patients. Which, come to find out, actually, they kind of are. Yeah, well, it's interesting, too, how they kind of do the layers of it, where initially you're introduced to the idea of, like, oh, no, they're doing, like, the Nazi experiment thing. Another great turn from both Emily Mortimer and Patricia Clarkson's the two different versions of Rachel Zalando, where it's just like, oh, yeah, it's interesting, oh, they're doing weird Nazi experiments. Like, this is sort of the genre movie it's edging toward being um and then you find out oh no they're experimenting but in this really weird role-playing way they're doing with fucking Leonardo DiCaprio now it's very odd like this is this is the weirdest LARP session ever <laughs> this is just wild <laughs> you know what I this mean? is the most elaborate um yeah. D game of all time <laughs> exactly Ben uh, Kingsley rolled a nine now he has to pretend that the weather's <laughs> happening this way <laughs> <laughs> You got a negative 10,000 blow to sanity. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, I will say, though, one of the scenes that still, like, every time I see it, well, it's what's like, DiCaprio crying when he really cries is fucking, he's really good at it. Uh, like, his whole face just just mangles and it's, yes. he gets wet. Uh, the, when, with the scene with the kids, Jesus Christ, man. And- and Michelle Williams, which that was something I remember at the time, sort of thinking like, oh man, this is sort of like a lesser role for Michelle Williams when I first saw oh, no, she's it. really good in it. Well, yeah. especially upon rewatching it, I, I realized so many more of the nuances that show up that she has been horribly abused by DiCaprio in the past, and this is the really sad, tragic way she thinks she can like get out of it, basically, given his violent tendencies and stuff like that. They give you a lot of hints that like he is probably not well enough to have like a stable relationship in a family situation like this. Oh no, and he's clearly cheating on her and he's like mm-hmm. beating her and drink her and Oh no, yeah, he's a total, total piece of shit. Uh but that being said, not that I don't feel sympathy for her character, but murdering your children is probably not the best way to maybe get out of it. Well, I, I don't think the film was pro-killing children in that way. Um, maybe well, then, I completely took the wrong message from this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, Martin, Martin, what do you want to do with this movie? Killing kids is fun. Yeah. I just want to show, you know, that sometimes sometimes you just got to kill kids. You know, kids get in the way, and you want to break up with your lover, and, uh, you know, you just you drown, some, drown some babies. By the way, have you met my nine-year-old daughter? <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, you. <laughs> No, I, I think what it's definitely saying is just like this felt like the sort of desperate situation that she felt she'd get out of. And then at the same time, his visions of her are this sort of creepy way of saying this is what he sort of assumed her role would be. I think that's the thing. Like, that's another thing that came up along with like the Marvel discussion with Scorsese about like, um, also, oh, he always has like these lesser roles for women. And I mean, that's, I, that's kind of arguable. I mean, we're both dudes here, so it's 
<laughs> we might not have the, the best perspective, but I think he always has sympathy for these female characters, I think, especially here. And any of you motherfuckers saying that I also need to see, like, Alice doesn't live here anymore, which is a great movie that has a great performance from Ellen Burstyn in it as a main character. Okay. Shannon Stone's performance in fucking Casino, for God's sakes. Or um, Elaine Bracco in... Uh, yeah, good fellas. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't buy too much in. Uh, I, I think he doesn't have as many meaty roles for, for females as far as, you know, it's usually always male-dominated cast. But I do think that most of the female roles he does have are, are very, very important and meaty you know, sort of parts. I, I don't, I don't buy too far into the, he doesn't give, you know, females a lot, female actors a lot to do. I, I don't, I don't think that's true. No, no, I, they're definitely, they tend to be more supporting characters overall if you look at his whole filmography, but they're not unimportant roles, like especially Michelle Williams here, where you get so much of like what DiCaprio thought of her and versus like when you see the actual thing that happened, um, and her actual just like desperation to try and get out of the situation and all this other stuff. I think there's there, there's so much there and such a really beautifully tragic role for her as well. And then you really feel it when like he shoots her in the stomach uh, during that flashback and all this other stuff. Yeah, they do. And, and even like as, as much as say the CG doesn't necessarily work that much when she turns into Ash, that whole sequence where like he goes into the their house in the like weird dream sequence and everything's like starting to burn on fire. And stuff like that. Yeah. That's such a great way of showing off that, like, he had this idea of domesticity and bliss when really, oh no, everything was falling apart. He just didn't, wasn't cognizant enough to realize it. That's something that he loves doing, is really examining masculinity and how much of that often is just like this sort of ego boost that makes you completely lose track of what's really happening in your life and how it's just crumbling around you when you don't even want to acknowledge it. No, yeah, it, it, it's, you know, I, I don't even know that it's the case that you know, Teddy didn't realize it was happening. I just don't think he really gave a fuck until it was too late. You know, he was too concerned with drinking and screwing around and everything. Um, and it's almost like these nightmares that he's having and everything are, you know, his realization then what was happening and things like that. It's all right. Let's just talk about the accent. <laughs> I've been trying to tiptoe around it because I spent most of my diatribe on the last movie about the accent. But to, to fucking DeCamp, can, can he do a convincing accent, honestly, other than his normal voice? I mean, really? I'm thinking. Because <laughs> no is the answer. I, I, I mean, this and the sh Departed accent is pretty much the same. I'd argue the Departed is probably one of his more well done but he just he can't do an accent to save his life and god bless him for keep trying but like even the aviator well, this is just like just stop making him do accents so would you say then that he's the the lesser sort of lead do you, do you not like him usually in scorsese movies as a lead um, well i really uh, it's not that I don't like him. I think he is nine-tenths great anytime he has to use an accent. It's the, that the fucking accent almost takes me out of it every time, especially when he's going against other capable actors who are who are really pulling it off. It, it just sticks out like a sore thumb. But, like, I mean, Wolf of Wall Street, he's fantastic in. Right, and he's not really doing an accent there. He's, right, right. Well, he's putting more well, of his energy into, like, the physical comedy, which is fucking uh -huh. Oh, he's phenomenal. 
No, it, it's because he's really good in this. He is really, really, really good. Like I said, it's probably my favorite uh, Scorsese DiCaprio performance. <sighs> if he wasn't so good of an actor, then I couldn't, I couldn't handle it, the bad accent. But he's really good, so I can almost give the accent a pass because everything else he's doing is top-notch. Well, and I think what really works here is the fact that because of his character, that accent becomes so much more of an act, even though it's technically his real accent as the character. Um, it, it still feels like it's, it's so much more of like him putting on an airs, like especially when he um, encounters Ben Kingsley during the climax of the movie, and he is confronted with the idea. It's like, oh no, this is all like a ruse. And Sherrod, he's just like, oh well, how do you explain what happened to my partner? And it's like, oh, you, you just, oh, honey, no, you, you don't know. You yeah. don't know what's going down. It feels more like it's defense mechanism at that point. It's even breaking down a bit more. He's becoming more and more sort of like a child realizing mm-hmm. that like playtime's over to a certain extent. Yeah. And... yeah, it's almost like he's played a noir cop. Yes. Really amping it up to almost be like a tough guy to come off like, you know, he's in charge and he's really, you know, not going to take any flack off anybody. But then, you know, he gets put up against you know, like a Ted Levine or God bless him. I can't ever remember his name, but the head of the guard, John Carroll. These look, le- yeah, these legitimate like ball breaking tough guys. It could almost see him almost retreat back in himself every time when he's really intimidated. He sort of amps it up even more when he doesn't know what's going on or he's intimidated. Or even someone who's more assured of himself, like Patricia Clarkson, who's just mm-hmm. like, "What the fuck are you talking about? Like, that's <laughs> I didn't have any kids. I don't have a husband. I'm a doctor here who just got like fucking broke in the situation. Like, even then, his guard is being let down so much where he just realizes like, oh, I, I wasn't actually aware of the situation at all. <laughs> it's it's really just completely deconstructing his fantasy as time goes on to the point where I, I love the ending of this movie so much more upon this watch. Oh, yeah, no, the ending is so so well done to where i mean the first time i saw it like obviously i understood the twist and everything but i think maybe i wasn't really paying attention at the very very end because you're more reeling from the fact that like oh man we we thought this twist already we get it ben kingsley we know what this is yeah basically uh that i was like you know by the time he's sitting there with mark ruffalo on the steps and everything i'm like "Uh, all right well let's just end the movie i didn't I don't think I picked up the idea that no, he's it worked basically. What what they did, but he's he's going to pretend that he's still crazy so he can just get the lobotomy to forget everything that happened. Yes, that I love that so much. How that's it's just like so fucked up, man. Yeah, we're just like, what's our <laughs> next move? And then Mark Ruffalo does that great nod over to Ben Kingsley, like, nope, didn't work. And Ben Kingsley just looks for a second and is like, all right, let's keep. <laughs> like I love that look on his face um, and then DiCaprio just says that line about like you know made me realize maybe it's uh, better to die a noble man than live as a monster and he just right. it's so great that's such a great final mm-hmm. line for this whole movie oh absolutely absolutely I, I, I think that was probably the best and only satisfying outcome for this movie yeah, and it's a really fucked up, sad, <laughs> unsettling oh, ending. But the whole movie really is. No, it, it really is. Yeah, it plays on a lot of sort of like these horror sort of tropes, but in a way that feels more distinctive of like, oh, this is this man completely breaking down what he thought he was and realizing who he really is as a person. I, I, I really dug that. But that's the weird thing is this double feature is one of the rare times where 
I rewatch movies I've seen before, and the good feature I felt less about than I did the first time, and the good fe- the bad feature I feel better about. Nevertheless, yep. <laughs> completely shifted perspectives. Yeah, I am right on board. I 100% agree with you. Yeah, I guess it's just uh, the power of Scorsese's uh, direction. So let's get, I guess, into final thoughts on Adam. Your final thoughts on Shutter Island. I think this movie sort of gets an unfair unfair shake. Uh, even like other people I told that these were the movies that we were doing, you know, they think, oh, Shutter Island. I'm like, wait, I mean, did you even give it a fair chance or were you just biting into what everybody was saying at the time? Because... I'd argue, I mean, it's by no means a bad film at all. I think it's, like I said, the way it's filmed, the the color palettes, the all of the acting, except for that goddamn accent, but all of the acting and the ending. I mean, it's just, it's a really, really well done movie. Is it one of my favorite Scorsese movies? No, but it is by no means his worst either at all. I think this is a very, very well done movie. Yeah, I th- I would definitely ar- agree with that. Um, overall, as I said, I've, this is the Chris season movie where I really grow to appreciate it more on the second watch. There's still some sweaty kind of stuff with the premise, um, with the whole role playing thing. It's just like okay, it's a bit of a stretch, but at the same time, you're still engaged in what the characters are doing. You're still really following um, this this whole story and the tragedy of it really sinks in upon the second time when you're not as focused on like, oh, what's the twist going to be? It's pretty obvious, Marty. It's like, no, he knows that. He knows that you know what this twist is going to be. But he's more enticed with just like, well, let's examine why this character would actually be that killer. Like in so many bad twist movies that came out, especially post like Sixth Sense, it's so much more about the reveal, about like, oh my God, it's actually this. And like these small Uh details make sense. But this is really examining like, here is this character and why he is just like sort of been destroyed and disheveled. And like, we didn't even talk about it, but that whole flashback with the war sequence is so yeah. haunting. That's like the most horror-driven element of this movie, is when we see those flashbacks, especially the mountains of frozen people in Dachau. Oh, no. I know. Ugh. Like, that's the thing, is it's definitely sort of like, it's Scorsese kind of melding film noir and horror elements to make this interesting character study about a monster of a man who comes to realize he's a monster that he was chasing this whole time which is so interesting. It's really engaging. There's a lot of great stuff. There's some stuff like the, like I mentioned, some of the stuff with the setup or even the use of um, existing classical music, I think is kind of hit or miss. Cause sometimes it's a bit overbearing. Like when they first enter the Institute and it's like big, boom, 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 boom. like, okay, we're, calm down. <laughs> we get it. <laughs> it's spooky. <laughs> Martin, we get it. Exactly. Yeah. Right, right, right. But there are other times where it's a lot more haunting and ethereal and spooky in a way that I, I do agree. I think this is one of his more underrated movies in the span of his whole career. Not the most. We'll get to that in feedback. We have some people who point out the most underrated, I would argue. Um, but this one is definitely one that needs to be, I think, re-examined by some people, especially now that's nearly 10 years old. It deserves to get a reappraisal. Agreed. Yes, uh, but that's the end of our uh, discussion of our double feature of Martin Scorsese movies, but not the end of the show, because if you stick around to the very end of the show, uh, we do our picking for next week's episode, and we also have some other stuff to talk about, including feedback, because every Monday at DEDBpod, which is our Facebook and Twitter page, uh, every Monday we put up a feeler about, like, hey, what are your favorite, least favorite things related to whatever topic we're doing for the week? And we asked all of you about Marty Scorsese and his best and worst films, and uh, so we had some people uh, chime in with that. Uh, first off, uh, David Snyder, who's at the Impossibles 
on Twitter said best Goodfellas and worst gangs in New York. Um, James Rodriguez, previous guest, said uh, my favorite Scorsese films are Black Panther and Doctor Strange. Oh wait, oh James, <laughs> you trickster! Uh, seriously though, I have a lot of love for Silence, a compelling meditation on faith, and the best film of 2016, where Andrew Garfield played a religious man, um, starting uh, staring into the face of adversity. Uh, I'm also a fan of The King of Comedy, a masterfully uh, played black comedy about the lengths one goes to in achieving fame, with one of Robert De Niro's best performances ever. Casino is also worth mentioning, an engrossing tale which makes every minute of its three-hour runtime count. Uh, Brian Kane says, I feel like After Hours was the progenitor of the modern crazy night comedy, uh, what with how surreal and progressively batshit that movie gets. I'm also glad that the King of Comedy is getting a heap of new attention thanks to Joker. Uh, nothing from him is particularly objectionable to me, though silence can be a bit of a slog at times. Uh, Nick Frazier said, best, that's tough, everybody's going to say Goodfellas, so I'm going to go with The Departed, even if it's a remake of a Hong Kong film. And worst, uh, New York, New York didn't do much for me. And then uh, Will Torres says, favorite is King of Comedy. Rupert Pupkin is what the character of the Joker truly is, a delusional sociopath that thinks it's he's hilarious when he's really just an obnoxious asshole that thinks he deserves more for nothing. Not some put-down-upon, poor misfit of society. It's an ahead-of-its-time film that explores the connections that people have with celebrity and fame that they can admire and love uh, when they feel that connection and then be resentful and petty uh, once the connection is taken from them. Least, um, I guess, Shark Tale? Why not? Um, but yeah, everybody's been pointing out King of Comedy. I completely agree. That movie is so great and nobody talks about it. Yeah, it's really, really good. Like, that's the thing is Joker is a part of the reason I kind of disliked that movie was because it's so very blatantly being like, hey, look, it's Taxi Driver and King of Comedy. Like, especially King of Comedy. They have De Niro play the fucking talk show host. <laughs> It's like a wink to King Comedy that's pretty fucking obvious. If you've never seen that movie, it's so phenomenal. It's, it's De Niro playing this guy who is a down-and-out uh, guy who wants to be a comedian, but he's not that funny. And he lives in his mother's basement, and he has a whole fucking setup that's dedicated to, like, paper cutouts of his favorite talk show, where Jerry Lewis is the, the talk show host. And it's this really engaging, dark set satire about fame and celebrity that is, as everybody mentioned, so out of its time. It is, like, so predictive, like, modern celebrity culture, down to his sort of uh, criminal actions that go on as the, the film goes along. That's maybe my second favorite Scorsese movie after Goodfellas. I haven't seen it that... I, I think I've only seen it once, maybe twice, so I definitely want to revisit it. But I remember really, really enjoying it. Um, and I mean, some of these people also mentioned stuff like After Hours is very underrated and is a very fun one. Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's, it's, very, it's much more comedy than he would usually do, but it's also very dark and disturbing in its own right. Um, I will say Silence is one of the ones that I respect more than I like, necessarily. Because um, it's it's also very long. That one's, I think, three and a half hours long. It's Yeah, I haven't seen that one. That's I think that might be one of the only Scorsese movies I haven't seen, other than his first movie, which we talked about earlier. Yeah, you're uh, like a boxcar birthday, I assume. You probably haven't seen that, <laughs> which I haven't either. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I haven't yeah, seen yeah. that either. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I haven't seen Silence. Uh, it just kind of didn't interest me. Um, but, I mean, I'm going to eventually, of course, watch it, just when I get around to it. It's not one that I'm dying to see. 
Well, and I think that's one also that it was another passion project where he'd been wanting to make that since around the time of like Last Temptation of Christ. He was originally going to make the Silence movie, but then the funding fell apart. So he had Last Temptation, which is admittedly another one where I don't think many people realize it's a Scorsese movie, but that one's so great. I fucking yeah, love it. Yeah, it's great. Defoe was one of the weirdest casting choices for Jesus, but he fits oddly well. Well, and that and that's telling. Yes, absolutely, he's perfect. Particularly that bit where he just <laughs> talks about, "I used to believe in love. Now I believe in this." He pulls up a fucking axe. It's like, oh god, Jesus has an axe. <laughs> I know. <laughs> this is so insane. <laughs> Are there any other like ones that don't get enough appreciation that you would want to spotlight on him from his filmography? I mean, I don't really think so. That to to be honest, I think. You know, I think Mean Streets might get overlooked a little bit. Um, I think Mean Streets is a really fucking good movie. You know, nobody mentioned uh, Raging Bull. Raging Bull is a fantastic movie. And I also, of course, really, really love The Departed as well. I mean, ranking a bad Scorsese movie is, like, not the easiest thing to do because they're pretty much all really good for the most part. Yeah, like even those that I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of, I respect to some degree. Like, New York, New York was mentioned as a bad one. I do really dig that one, but it is definitely sort of odd in his filmography, for sure. It's a bit of a mess. It's kind of in the same vein, I would say, of uh, Gangs New York in that way. Um, and even Silence also kind of feels that way, too, given how much he's passionate about it, but the story doesn't quite come together as well. You know, a really underrated one, I would say, is uh, Bringing Out the Dead with Nicolas Cage. That's a really, really good call. That is one that I honestly, A, I don't think a lot of people realize it is a Scorsese movie. And B, it's like just not talked about at all. And that movie is fucking fantastic. That's one of Nicolas Cage's best performances ever. If not, if not his best. Yes. It's so, so good. Yeah, especially with just, it's playing so much on, like, the Scorsese thing of, oh, it's what, it's kind of like a weird combination of, like, After Hours and Taxi Driver, where it's like, oh, one giant crazy night, but it's really just the last of many nights where this particular ambulance driver is just, like, on the edge of complete insanity because of insomnia, <laughs> and it's it's such a great turn for Nicolas Cage as well. It's it's so good, and just one that's not talked about that much at all. Yeah, and I'm not a huge uh, fan of Hugo, either. I get why people like it, and I understand it. it, it it's just... It, it's not for me. See, I remember really loving it at the time. I think particularly <laughs> for that—that that was one where I did, had no idea about the George Villiers thing that was happening, like in the third act. And I think like the first two thirds of it are like, "Oh, it's a cute kids movie," and the last third of it is like, "Oh, it's a beautiful examination of why people love movies and why people, especially at yeah. that time, kind of need it at the same time." Um, and it's—I think that's one of Ben Kingsley's best performances in recent years too. As Milliers. I think he's so wonderful in that performance. So warm and so tender and so honestly, like sort of haunted and regretful at the same time. Um, that's also, I think, one of the better examples of using the 3D, but in a way that fits the story pretty well. I did a lot of it in the 3D format, so that might have Yeah, no, I, I did too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree that the 3D was expertly done. And I do agree about Ben Kingsley as well. But yeah, there's something about it. It just never really landed with me. Uh, but I've only seen it the one time, so... I mean, that might be one worth revisiting at some point. Maybe my kid gets a little older. And we talked about Cape Fear, me and you. Uh, I think Cape Fear is three quarters of an excellent movie. I, I think it sort of slogs at the end, gets a little out there. But I think Nolte and De Niro just turn in fantastic performances in that movie. Yeah, it doesn't help also that I saw that after seeing the Simpsons Cape Fear episode. <laughs> 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 just completely fucking skewers that yeah movie. yeah it <laughs> does one of the best episodes of that goddamn show 
But, uh, but yeah, so uh, th- thank you for all that feedback, and we also want to thank some other people here, like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used for our show. Uh, you can listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Alice Garda for the art that's used on our show as well. And you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. Uh, that's where we post up those feelers and also just a few other random tidbits and things. And you can also email us at uh, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com. Or uh, you can find my own individual Twitter account at Not the Who's Tommy, where I post random things. And I do some writing for both uh, my blog, MarianiThomas.wordpress.com, um, and also TrueSuperheroFans.com, uh, where I do satirical superhero news for that last one, and for the other one I do movie reviews and stuff. Right now, as you're listening to this, I will have an early review up of Knives Out, which I saw in early screening right before this. I haven't seen it yet when we're recording, but uh, I'm sure that review is quite a thing. It has a lot of words, I can tell you that. Um, and uh, Adam, what about, you have uh, some little art stuff that you do, right? Yeah, it's uh, facebook.com slash ghoulishgourds. You know, I, I just started this year, I was painting, you know, styrofoam, pumpkins, uh, in any style, you know, pop culture related for the most part that anybody would want, and uh, selling them. But by the time this episode's out, I'll either already started or just about to start doing Christmas bulbs. They'll also, you know, anything pop culture related, I can paint on them and uh, ship them anywhere in the U.S. if you want to uh, commission one or I'll have some pre-made ones. And if you like one, you can buy one of those too. Everything's for sale. Everything's negotiable. And pretty much anything uh, you want can be done. So you can either shoot me a message right on that page. You can either... You can shoot our uh, our podcast page a message. You can shoot my own personal Facebook message. You can reach out to Thomas or our podcast page on Twitter. You know, send us an email at double edge double bill at Gmail. I have ghoulish gourds at Gmail. Uh, you know, so get a hold of me and I'll uh, we'll do something for you. Yeah, and you'll definitely get a discount of some sort if you say, "Hey, I heard about this on the show." I don't know. I was thinking of upcharging. <laughs> oh, you listen to our show? Ten dollars yeah, more. Yeah, I'm gonna try a new tactic. See how it works. <laughs> uh yes, and if you want more upcharging content like this, you you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. We're absolutely free. The price is not negotiable because it's free and you don't need to pay anything. Uh, and you can uh also if you're listening to us on ESO, uh maybe dig into the archives of our uh, Podbean feed for all the older episodes we didn't get to post on the the uh, channel for that. And then also make sure to rate, review, or at least share us around to give the show more visibility. Yeah, it doesn't take a lot, guys. Go home and get your review box. <laughs> yes. Uh, but now, Adam, uh, it's almost time to end the show, and uh, before we do, we gotta pick our movies for next week, and I mentioned Knives Out earlier, which will be coming out not too long after this episode drops, uh, but we decided uh, we're gonna do a genre we haven't really technically covered before and do mystery films in honor of that whodunit. Oh, I mean, I, we've covered mystery films on the show, but no, as a specific topic, no. I mean, you could argue even Shutter Island was a mystery, but... <laughs> Pretty easy to solve mystery. Well, yeah, if you ever, again, if you've ever seen a movie. Yeah, never as an actual topic, so this will be interesting. Picking bad mystery movies was kind of difficult, to be honest with you. Yes, because you had the two bad ones. You've assigned numbers between 1 and 10 for both of those. Yes. 
And I have the two good, and I have assigned numbers between 1 and 10 for both of those as well. And so uh, now we'll each pick numbers between 1 and 10 in order to get closer to whichever one of those uh, numbers we've assigned for the opposite person. And that gets us our good and bad feature for next time. So Adam, for my two good choices, number between 1 and 10. I'm not going to pick a number. It's a mystery. <laughs> um, I have to deduce the number. Yes. I deduce the number two. Just as I suspected, Watson. Number two, yes. Um, and uh, for that, uh, you know, at number one, I actually had a movie I've briefly talked about on the show, but I'm very excited because I think it's a very underrated one for particularly the lead actor here. It is Sidney Lumet's Death Trap, starring Christopher Reeve and Michael Caine. God, I don't even know if I've seen the whole movie. So yeah. that'll be fun. It's pretty great. Very excited to talk yeah, about it. <laughs> um, right, at, at number seven, I had The Long Goodbye, the Robert Altman film starring Elliot Gold. Yes. Yeah, that's a really good movie. Yes. But oh, now, okay. Adam, well, hmm, deduced, hmm, based on your nomenclature and based on your particular attitudes, I would deduce number six. You've caught me red handed, and I would have gotten away with it too. Um, at number seven. I am so sorry, Thomas. Can I just say it right now? If oh, no. you want to quit after this, you're more than welcome. Uh, Holmes and Watson. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, buddy. You monster. We just covered a good John C. Riley movie. <laughs> I know. I'm hitting hard with that one. Oh, oh I feel dirty. <laughs> and number one, I had Source Code with Jake Gyllenhaal. I like Source Code a bit. I think that movie has a trouble of, I think it would be a great movie if it ended three minutes earlier than it did. I kind of agree with you. That last three minutes really sort of ruined the whole movie for me. Uh, So, Holmes and Watson, my friend. Well, that's the real death trap compared to the good movie. Have you seen it yet? Uh, I deduced I haven't. I didn't Uh, want to. You're welcome. Uh, Well... We'll get into all of that uh, deduction next time, but until then, uh, do I look like a clown to you? Do I amuse you, Adam? Where's Karen? Wake up, Karen. I love Ray Liotta so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, good night, everybody. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Public store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.